Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Praise the Lord. It has been just an amazing week. So enjoyed the great preaching from Evangelist Mark Thrift, but excited to get back here talking about the book of Romans. So Romans uh, chapter 8 today. Today we have a unique topic <clears throat> that we're going to pull from this section of Scripture. I think it's so relevant to us, so useful. But here's, here's what it is, and that is how to suffer victoriously. <laughs> how to suffer. Have you always wanted to know how to suffer? Well, you came to the right place today. Uh, this uh, few weeks ago, or a few, yeah, a few weeks ago, we spent some time in Tahoe, uh, Lake Tahoe, right during the, right in the middle of all the storms. And so uh, we went in between, or we went on, traveled on the days when there was no actual snow falling. But while we were there, the snow just came dumping down. And... Um, so the snow is just dumping. We go outside to try to play in the snow and have a good time with the family. And the topic of conversation turns to, Dad, would you rather be stuck in the snow out in the forest or would you rather be stuck in the desert? In other words, would you rather die freezing or, or die baking in the sun? And, um, and I don't, I, again, I don't know why with teen boys, it always has to go back to death, you know, something always, but, but when you think about it, it is amazing how something as beautiful as falling snow can also be so deadly. <laughs> you know, you look outside, beautiful snow falling, looks so beautiful on the trees, just gorgeous, but you spend too much time out there, uh, you're going to find out it's not as beautiful as you thought, and it's not just nature. Um, uh, there you go. Thank you, brother. It's not just nature. We see the same thing in people. A baby is born, and it's the happiest day of a couple's life. But I've done several very difficult funerals where a child has died of cancer or a child has died from drowning. And then... There's the pure excitement of a wedding. Husband and wife, they get married, so excited about their future. But I've also watched more than a few spouses weeping at the bedside of their dying husband or their dying wife. You know, life here is wonderful, but it's also very tragic and very painful at times. Anyone who lives this life, for any amount of time, is going to eventually discover, and everybody in here I know would agree, that this is, this is not always a kind place, this earth. N and no one was aware of that more than Paul. <laughs> Nobody knew about suffering like Paul. Very few people in the world could give a list of suffering, of pain, l like he had. Look, read, look at this. This is what he wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He listed out his, some of the things he went through. He says, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Five times he was beaten uh, and scourged, he says. 
Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So if anybody in the world has the right to talk about suffering, it's not me, it's Paul, or any, any of us, it really is Paul. And in this section of Romans chapter 8, that's exactly what he does. And he shares with all of us as believers, and we all go through things, he shares with a Christian why a Christian should always have victory over suffering. And why should we, we should always live victoriously. And he says how to be able to suffer victoriously. And we can all do this. So number one, we're going to see, I think, here that if we're going to suffer victoriously, we need to believe, first of all, that the adopted have an inheritance. If you're adopted, you have an inheritance. And we need to believe that with all of our hearts. Look in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 15 today. For you have not received... The spirit of bondage. He's talking to believers here. He says, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Unbelievers live with a fear of death. They have the spirit of bondage to fear. This is proven all over the earth and it's proven every single day. You know, historically, people, groups, and tribes all over the world, naturally, they feel like they need to sacrifice to the gods. It's just something that's kind of built in to who we are as humans. We need to offer sacrifice to the gods because we can feel their, uh, the judgment. We feel something going on inside of us that isn't right. Some of the more modern nations use science, and they try to convince themselves, well, death really means nothing. We don't really need to be worried about what happens after death, but this is just a cover for the real true fear of death. Everyone is afraid of death. If they'll stop and think about it, we are just naturally afraid of death. But believers shouldn't have this fear because of an amazing truth, Paul says. You should not have this kind of fear because you have this, instead the spirit of adoption. See, God doesn't want his children to live with a mindset of fear. <clears throat> That's not what we've received from God as a sister. You, you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. No, you've received the spirit of, a, of adoption. That's something God gave you. I don't want you living with a mindset of fear. He doesn't want people waking up every day wondering, am I a child of God or does God hate me today? Is he going to beat me over the head? Is he going to kill me? Um, do I have to go offer some kind of sacrifices or do something to appease the gods? No. God does not want any person to have to live that way. Am I an enemy of God or am I a child of God? No, he wants to settle that. You, as a believer, are an adopted child of God. You're a child. He wants every born-again person to know you've been given adoption papers. You're in the family right now. In fact, to make it even more clear, God says here that you need to see yourself so close to your new father that you can even call him by a more intimate name, Abba. 
That's a more sweet and close, intimate name for God, and that is a, a name that we would call, or back then they might we call Papa or Daddy. You cannot get a better deal than this one, folks. <laughs> he adopts, God says, I, will, I am adopting you, and I'm so close to you, and we're so intimate that you can call me Abba. And the believer feels this deep in his spirit. Look at verse 16. The spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and abides or lives in every believer when they uh, become born again, when they place their trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit immediately comes to dwell inside every believer. And inside, one of the things he does is he gives a witness to our, with our spirit in the depths of who we are that we are God's children. And the spirit is in there encouraging our spirit. You're a child of God. You are a child of God. Now, there were always several witnesses back in Paul's day during a Roman adoption. So the reason they would have all these witnesses, and often it, it would they would say you need to have at least seven witnesses to an adoption uh, proceedings. So the point was so that later on down the line, let's say that the father dies and you're the adopted child, nobody could come back later and say, no, this person wasn't adopted. He doesn't receive all the father's stuff. No, there's seven witnesses to say, no, he is truly adopted. And that's the point here. We have the Holy Spirit. He bears witness with our spirit. He is witnessing. Today, as believers, we not only have the Holy Spirit, we have the Word of God as well. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit are our two greatest witnesses that we are adopted children of God. And the devil can't say otherwise. And nobody can say otherwise. We are adopted children of God. But it gets better. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So in scripture, when Paul talks about adoption, <clears throat> he's usually referring to more than just the sweet relationship we have with God. What he's often really talking about is the future inheritance. He's referring to the fact that you get something. You are now placed in a family and you are in a new position in God's family. Therefore, you're going to get something someday. You get his, an inheritance. The word adoption actually in Greek here means placing as a mature son. Now, the, the word sons here is important in this, in this definition, in, the, in this uh, picture that Paul is painting. Because in Roman adoption, the son gets everything. So the believer, God is saying, male or female, is pictured as a son who gets everything. <laughs> now, I'm going to talk about Roman adoption for just a minute because I think it really helps us get more out of the analogy that Paul gives us. So the early readers, they would have read what Paul said here and known exactly what Paul is talking about. In fact, they might even think of Julius Caesar who was adopted or who adopted Caesar Augustus or the Emperor Claudius who adopted Nero. So adoption was a big thing. It was no small thing back then. But uh, uh, the great uh, Bible historian William Barclay brought out some amazing, unique aspects of the adoption of Paul's day. See, Roman adoption was such a huge deal, partly because of this thing called patria potestas. 
And that is that the father in the Roman family has absolute power over his family. Patria potestas. It was the power of disposal, it was the power of control, it was the power of life and death over everyone in the family. He could decide if any of his family members needed to die and they would have to die. So no, in fact, in regard to his father, a Roman son growing up never really came of age. No matter how old that son got, he was still under the patria potestas. He's the absolute possession and absolute control of his father. So, if you think about that, adoption then from one family into another family was very difficult and a very serious thing. If in a, to be able to pass from one patria potestas to another patria potestas, this, there were two steps. The first one was called mancipatio, and that is they used the scale and, the, and copper symbolically, and they would present this in this symbolized moment and so three times they would go through this uh, symbol of selling the son, if you will, or I'm selling my son to you. But here's what he would do. The first time he would sell the son and then the son, he would buy the son back. He would sell the son again and then buy the son back. He would sell the son the third time, but this last time he wouldn't buy the son back. Again, this was all symbolic. And, by, and in that third time, the patria potestas was broken. And now this son could go uh, under this new leadership. And after that, then there was a, a ceremony called the Vindicatio. And this is the adopting father would go to one of the Roman magistrates. He would present his entire legal case for the transference of this person to me. And now this person would be adopted into my family. And as the patriot potestas, now I am in control of this person's life. And when all of that was completed, Everything was done. He could now be in control of that, that person. So now think about these four pictures here that Paul is saying. If everybody understands Roman adoption, we understand now how this all works. How this fits with our adopt, being adopted into God's family. Number one, the adopted person loses all rights in his old family. And he gained all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. In the, very, in the most binding legal way, he got a new father. Number two, this means that he becomes heir to the new father's estate. He gets everything. Even if other sons are born afterward, it, did, it would not affect his rights. It was his because he is now co-heir. He would just be co-heir with them. And in the law, the old life of the adopted person is completely wiped out. You're, that is completely gone. For instance, all debts are canceled. He was regarded now as a new person. You're entering into a new life and the past had no, has nothing to do with you any longer, legally. And in the eyes of the law, he was absolutely the son of this new father. So do you see how incredible this analogy is? God chose to, he chose to use this analogy of adoption and say that is what has happened to you. God has taken you from, a, from the, the control and a life with the devil. Your life is on, uh, on, a, on, a, on the wrong track, and I have now put you into my family. All your debts are canceled. Everything is God, gone. The old life is gone. Behold, all things are new. That's what happens when we get saved. So now think about this. It's amazing. We have a God as our Father now 
But what Paul is saying is, now, I want you to understand this. Your future inheritance is beyond belief. You are an heir of God's estate. You are a joint heir with Christ. This doesn't mean we split the inheritance with Jesus. It means that we enter into the same inheritance as Christ. Every Christian, all of us, share in the same inheritance. That is, no one gets a different heaven. There are rewards that differ, but we all get the same inheritance. Now, it says that we will be glorified here in this verse. Glorified together. And this is, a, when, when you see that word glorified, that's an all-encompassing word to describe everything that God has for us in the future. A new body, a new earth, unending fellowship with God and with other saints. See, but, but here's the thing we need to accept this morning. Until we reach glory together with Christ, until the time of our inheritance, the believer will face suffering in this earth to one degree or another. In fact, this verse says, if so be. Meaning it's part of what the child of God must go through. It's just, it's par for the course. You, you, maybe, you could see, uh, maybe you could see this as the calling card of the child of God. Suffer now, glory later. Suffering is often in scripture linked to glory. As we're going to suffer here, yea, all that will Live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You will suffer here. Our master suffered. Why would we expect any better treatment? I don't know why we get so surprised by suffering. <laughs> why do I have to go through this? Why, why should I, Lord, I look what all I do. That's, that's not how this works. Let this be very clear. You have an inheritance waiting for you someday. It's going to be beyond belief but it's after the pain of this life is over. Yeah, they may sound ominous, and you say, wow, thanks a lot, Pastor Luke, that's super encouraging, and maybe it's even depressing for some people, I don't know, but listen, imagine for just a minute now, put yourself in the, in the shoes of a persecuted Christian right now in North Korea, for example, or put yourself in the shoes of a persecuted Christian back in Paul's day, and imagine how comforting these words must have been. Yes, you're going through suffering now, but there's an inheritance on the horizon. You are an adopted child of God. Yes, even Jesus suffered here, but someday you get everything that came coming to Jesus. So the Lord wants us to believe that an adopted person gets inheritance. Number two, believe that those who suffer will receive glory. Look at verse 18 here, but again, first of all, imagine how much comfort this next verse must have been for those who are about to be thrown in with the lions. For I reckon, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now the word reckon is an amazing verse here. The word reckon means to count. So Paul gets out his spreadsheet and he starts to count up the sufferings. He draws a line down the middle. Here we go. Sufferings on this side, glory on this side. I'm going to start counting up. I'm going to reckon these too. And he begins to write, and you know what? Pretty soon, Paul has to put his pen down. There is no comparison. This, I reckon, when I count this, the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed someday in us. All the suffering we could possibly go through 
is not worthy to be compared with the unending glory ahead. You know, I think the problem with some people is that we keep a, making a list of all of our sufferings. And we do not, day after day after day, we just keep on writing all the list of our sufferings. Look at what I'm going through. Look at what I have to go through. Look at what I have to go through. Look at what I have to go through. Stop counting sufferings. Stop counting because they are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed someday. Stop counting your sufferings and start counting your blessings in Christ. If we could only live with eternal eyes, with eternal eyes, boy, we'd have a totally different perspective on life. You know, I was thinking even our best days, even the abs- your best day on this earth is no comparison for what God has for his children, the inheritance. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. <laughs> Listen, we, ha- we simply have no idea how great the glory that we w- will be revealed in us. And this verse tells us that the glories, basically what it's saying is that the glories already exist. They're just going to be someday revealed to us. They're already there. God's got them waiting. The glories are all ready to go. And someday they will be revealed in us, and that is in our bodies. If you're going through something right now, memorize this verse. (laughs) If you're going through a time of suffering, memorize Romans 8.18. Paul goes on, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature, or or the creation, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Uh, Several times in scripture, God pictures all creation waiting for God to come and fix everything. Earnest expectation, that phrase means literally to watch with the neck outstretched and the head erect. Watch with the neck outstretched and the head erect. It's an earnest expectation, waiting, 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 waiting. Creature there, the word creature refers to all creation. Specifically, everything under man. So that is plants, animals, minerals, all creation. This whole earth. The point Paul is saying is even the earth, everything you see around you, is waiting for God to end all of this suffering and give his inheritance to his children. Phillips uh, translates this verse this way. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. I like that. As I mentioned earlier, the signs of a broken earth are everywhere. There isn't a thing on this earth that isn't affected by sin. Verse 20, listen what, look what it says. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. What this means is, this is speaking of the fall. All creation is under a curse, not willingly, but because God had to punish the sin of Adam. 
So therefore, that curse then comes upon all the earth, all creation. And because all creation is made for man, and man sinned, then everything is cursed. But thankfully, God has promised deliverance from this curse. Not just to man, but even to physical creation. Everything is going to be redeemed. And everything is going to be delivered from this curse. This whole earth will someday be changed. Look at verse 21. Because the creature, that is creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You know, someday, just like us, the earth will break free from its bondage of corruption. No more death, no more decay, no more pain. Now, by the way, this is why I'm not an environmentalist. (laughs) I certainly want to take care of the earth, and I certainly do not purposely want to destroy our quality of life. For example, I don't want a smog-filled sky everywhere I go. I don't want that. I agree. But I'm not going to spend my whole life and energy on something that is in the bondage of corruption. I'm not going to worship something that is in the bondage of corruption. The only thing that can really help this earth is when Jesus comes back and takes us all out of here and then remakes everything. This world is under a bondage of corruption. And we need to understand this. And all of us who are suffering will someday receive glory. Then we need to, verse 3, or excuse me, number 3, believe this. Believe that those who groan have a hope, have hope. Yes, this, we are under bondage of corruption. Yes, this place is a, uh, is a horrible place. But look at verse 22. For we know the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Paul says from the fall to his time that he was writing this, from, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So all that time we know the creation has just been groaning and travailing. And we can say now, 2,000 years later after Paul, the earth is still groaning and still travailing. What does that mean? Well, Paul uses the word travail here and groaning in in the sense of childbirth. The picture is the pains and the groanings of labor, childbearing labor. Now, I've been witness to several births. (laughs) And honestly, the process is not pretty. I've heard the groaning of childbirth. Anybody in those, those labor and delivery rooms knows that. I've heard the groaning and seen the travail of childbirth. I've tried to tell my wife, you just don't know how hard it is for me to see you in such pain. <laughs> she never quite gets that understanding. But, um, but is, have, have you ever noticed how when we show somebody pictures of, of our newborn baby that we never show the labor and delivery part? <laughs> Look, look how horrible everything, no, we don't do that, just the baby. Why, by the way, why do we even have pictures and videos of that groaning and travail anyway? It's horrible. The point is, right now, we are in the ugly, painful, groaning and travailing part. It's horrible. This is not a, a pleasant place always for people to live. People lose their lives from natural disasters. People on this globe are starving to death. Go to the hospitals and walk the halls. Go to the children's hospitals. Go to the cancer wings and tell me that this place is just a wonderful, wonderful place. The earth is a place of death, decay, and pain. 
But here's the thing. God says those are birth pains. Now, birth pains are different from other kinds of pains because there is something good on the other side of this pain. And, that, and that's the point God's making. All of this pain, all of this ugliness, all of this stu- stuff is actually a sign that is pointing to the soon coming of Christ and his inheritance for the sons of God and the children of God. Verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. There's not just creation out there. Paul says, we groan within ourselves too. Our bodies that house the Holy Spirit often want out of here. <laughs> they groan. I'd sur- I heard some of you groaning just getting sitting in your seat this morning. <laughs> Our bodies are aging. They are getting diseases. Our bodies are living in pain and agony. Anybody over 40 years old knows that. <laughs> in fact, this past year I've had some back pain more than I have before and I've, I've been learning what I can do about that. <clears throat> so here's what the experts have for me. I, I say, can I sit? please. They say, well, just don't sit too long. Can I stand? Well, don't stand too long. Well, can I walk? Well, be careful with your form when you walk, okay? Can I run? Well, I shouldn't run too far because of your knees. Oh, okay. Well, don't cross your legs too long. Don't let your shoulders slump. Be careful how you lay down. Don't eat this. Eat that. Don't eat this. Don't do that. Do this. Okay, this all makes me groan within myself. There's so much, we got, we have to, at the end of it, we just have to realize these bodies will not last forever. They're not meant to. We are under a curse. We're in the fall. That's what I'm finding out. The Bible is right. It's a fallen world. We groan, we groan, we groan. But I think that this scripture is speaking more than just the bodily aches and pains too. This is a mental and emotional pain as well on this earth. Yes, we have, because he, he, he says we have the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We're promised heaven. But I'll be honest, sometimes the internal stuff that we deal with is far more brutal than the painful stuff physically that we deal with. Prodigal children, people we love that are away from the Lord, watching people deal with addictions, seeing children suffer abuse, When I think of the weight of all the burdens of this world, I just want Jesus to come back. (laughs) I just want Jesus to come back and end all of this. And that's why Paul says we groan within ourselves, waiting, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. We are waiting for the adoption to be fully realized when we finally get our new redeemed body, a body that is made now for our new home, an eternal body like Jesus' body that's fit for a home that'll last forever. And this time of waiting right now and waiting for God to do what he, he's going to do is called, this time of waiting is called hope. Hope. It's Christian waiting. It's knowing that something great is coming even though we don't see it with our eyes in the moment. Look at verse 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? 
But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience or endurance wait for it. Biblical hope is the the inability to see the future, but fully expecting God to work out what he promises. Biblical hope is an assured expectation, a confident knowledge, an inward possession, a spiritual safety. It is patience or endurance in our waiting. It's knowing that God will do what he says. This is the thing he says, and I just expect it to happen at any moment. It's based on the word of God, and it's based on the inner witness of the spirit. It's, hope is linked arm in arm with faith. In fact, Matthew Henry says, faith is the mother of hope. Therefore, Paul can say, we're saved by it. And that hope in our future gives us strength to take on anything, anything, anything that the world may throw at you. That hope lets you take on anything that the world may throw at you. There is always hope for the Christian. We are never hopeless. I also wonder sometimes, as I studied this week especially, I wondered if this phrase, saved by hope, can also mean that this hope has a saving power in our experience, in, in the, the things that we experience even now. Meaning, sim, you know, similar to what I hear Christians say often when a loved one dies. Almost every time uh, someone they love, if they, uh, if they know they're with the Lord and, and, um, and this person is a strong Christian, I almost always will hear them say something like, I don't know how anybody could go through this pain without Jesus. I don't know how anybody could even do this without Jesus. In other words, without hope in Christ and hope in heaven, I would be a complete basket case. (laughs) Therefore, this hope just saves me. It keeps me from destroying my life. But wait, there's more. Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, while you're suffering here, just keep looking ahead, keep looking ahead. He wants us to do that. But he says, I'm with you right now as well. And I have help for you right now in the moment. Look at at number four here, and that is believe that those who hurt have help. Those who hurt have help. If you have hurt right now, if you are hurting, you have help. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, God doesn't just say, a better future's coming, but good luck until then. No, the Spirit says, I'm going to get into the painful infirmities of your life with you, and I'm going to help you. He's actually helping, praying, or interceding, and groaning, it says, alongside us. He even groans with us. Think of that. God is so connected to our pain that he groans with us, groans with us, with groanings that cannot be uttered. Reminds me, the picture here is of a mother who is helping her child with a skinned knee. The Holy Spirit knows 
you know, the mother takes the child on, his, on her knee and says, you know, you're groaning and you're crying and you're weeping. You think this is the end of the world because of this pain you have. But as the mother, I know there's gonna be even more painful things coming. But you know what? My compassion and my love for you, I know this is not that bad, but I'm gonna be right there with you. I'm gonna hold you and I'm gonna help you. And that's the Holy Spirit. He says, I know, I know what's gonna happen. I know I'm gonna deliver you out of this thing. I know you think it's the worst thing that's ever happened to you, but know that I'm right here and I'm gonna groan right along with you. I'm gonna hold you. The Bible says, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He was weeping with his friends. But the amazing thing here is that he helps us pray because that's where things change and that's where things happen. I'm so glad this verse is in the Bible. I've been through some things sometimes that I absolutely have no idea how to pray for. I just don't know the words. I don't quite know what to ask for. It's, it's bad, there's something that, there's a turmoil or just confusing, and so I'm not sure. And so God says the Holy Spirit will enter into that. He'll know your weakness with your words, and he will pray with words that you do not have. You know, it's like, a, it's like a mechanic, like Philip Ortiz here. He speaks a language I cannot speak. <laughs> There's no way some of the things I could figure out on my own. And Philip comes along and says, oh yeah, this is easy. <laughs> what? How, how did you do that? And this is the Holy Spirit. He comes along. He comes right alongside us. Listen, you can't speak this language, but I can speak this language for you. I will make intercession for things and things you cannot even utter. Words that you don't even know. And I'll bring that before God. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. We're too dumb. We don't have the words. And the Holy Spirit, I'll get this fixed. Let's pray about it. And look what happens when he prays, verse 27. And he that searcheth the hearts, that is God, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for saints according to the will of God. God, who can see everything in my heart, and of course already knows the mind of the Spirit as the Spirit prays, God is now, turns all of his attention and he listens to this prayer from the Spirit because it's according to the will of God. And any prayer according to the will of God is answered by God. And as we'll see next week, we have then one of the greatest promises in the next verse. Maybe the greatest verse some say in the entire Bible. That God will make sure that all things will work together for our good in the end. So here's the thing. What are you going through? What are you worried about right now? Ask for the Holy Spirit's help in bringing that before God. And don't let this thing steal your joy. Don't let it steal your hope. And don't let it steal your confidence in the Lord. He's coming soon to fix everything. But until then, you have the Holy Spirit just lifting you up and praying things that you cannot even utter and helping you. Believe that the adopted have an inheritance. Believe that those who suffer will receive glory. Believe that those who groan have hope. And then believe that those who hurt have hope. That's how we suffer victoriously. Lord, we thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at the Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.